So we come to Job 14, reading the entirety of that chapter, God's holy and inspired word given to us, his people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job 14, God's word. Man, who is born of a woman, is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers, he flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring in a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are numbered and the number of his are, are determined and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy, like a hired hand, his his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grows old in the earth, and its stumps die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. A man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and river washes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Until the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait until my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones, and torrents wash away the soil of the earth. And so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. He, you change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Thus far the reading of God's word. May bless it to us. So it's not uncommon for us to compare ourselves with animals. Kids do it. Adults play games at it. For First of all, we often can look for some ability in some animal that we want for ourselves. We want to be fast as a cheetah or strong as a bear. This is, after all, a good uh, a way in which a good deal of superheroes are made. Or we can also take some attribute of ourselves and liken it to some animal. He is as sloppy as a pig. She is a timid mouse or as curious as a cat. Or we can take our favorite animals and try to be like them. 
We wear cow spots or leopard print pants. We desire to be as innocent as doves and as sly as snakes. And yet in this fun comparison between species, you rarely, if ever, hear someone want to be a plant. Sure, we may want some feature of a plant like beauty, poison, or longevity, but to be one, not really. For even though plants are alive, they don't have minds, which makes them rather an undesirable comparison. We love trees, but we don't want to be one. We don't envy them. Though, as Job continues to suffer, this is kind of what Job does. As he despairs of his life, he envies a tree. So we come to the last third of Job's long speech that spans chapters 12 through 14. And at the end of chapter 13, he was laying out for us what he would say to God if he perchance got that face to face with him. If Job did get his day in court with God, this would be what he would say. And it was, which was basically a list of painful questions. Job asked, why God do you hide your face from me? Why do you count me as your enemy? Job lamented how God wrote bitter things against him and hemmed him in as if his feet were in the stocks and all his paths were watched. Under the terrifying scrutiny of the Lord's wrath, Job was decaying like moldy meat, like a moth-eaten shirt. Yet now, with the opening of this chapter, Job transitions. He shifts ever so slightly from him specifically to the plight of humanity generally. His life is in agony, and the state of mankind is not much better. Job moves fluidly here, back and forth, between his particular situation and the predicament of all humans. Moreover, he is still mainly talking to God. Sure, he wants his friends to hear him, but his target audience is the Lord. And so he opens, man born of a woman, full of a few of days and full of agitation. With an echo to Genesis 3, we humans are born of a woman. Ever since Adam and Eve, there's been no exceptions to this rule. And our humanity is one of mortality. Short-lived are we. Turtles surpass our short span, lifespans of 70, 80 years or plus. Within the long eons of history, our life is barely a tick of the second hand on the clock. And yet our short life is also chock full of trouble. Turbulent agitation like bad indigestion is kind of our existence. Our lives are not really smooth sailing, but are constantly up and down on the high surf of uncertainty, pain, and anxiety. Like a flower, we bloom and wither away. Like a shadow, we quickly pass and do not remain. Now, Job's estimation of life we could call pessimistic. It's true, but this is a glass-half-empty perspective. And yet, more accurately, it's not so much about pessimism or optimism, but he is zeroing in on two truths that conflict. 
that relate by absurdity. This is brought out by the flower and shadow simile. We fade like a flower and a shadow, but flowers are the epitome of the beautiful. Roses, tulips, and lilies are the crown jewels of nature. And shade is a cool refreshment on a hot day. A shadow is a protection from the cruel sun. To relax under the shade of a large tree, this is the good life. The tension is, why did God make humanity so beautiful and then so brief? If ugly is brief, no one complains. But if refreshing beauty is short-lived, then it's a tragedy, something to be mourned. All that sweet was made, but to be lost when sweetest. What's the point of this? The goodness of beauty clashes with the speedy and the ephemeral. And Job adds to the absurdity. He says, you open your eyes on such a one? And this has a judicial tone. In fact, Job here echoes Jeremiah 32, which says, God opens his eyes on all the ways of mankind to repay each according to his deeds. This is divine scrutiny scrutiny and law. But why would God judge such a fleeting being? We live a second and are no more. No one judges a mayfly as it barely lives 24 hours. So why does the Lord examine and grade our blink of an eye existence? Though Job slips here back to his own situation, he says, you brought me into judgment. Job is being pressed and stretched under God's judgment, and this feels so incongruous with his insignificance. Job is too brief, too full of trouble, too inconsequential that God should size him up. Besides, the verdict is a foregone conclusion. Verse 4. Now, verse 4 here is quite difficult, and it's hotly debated. But this is probably the best way to read it. Quote, Oh, that a pure one could be among the impure, not one. That is, this is a wish. It's not a question. And he wishes that one person could be found among all the impure humans, but there isn't a single one. Following the remark about judgment, this seems to be the verdict as all humans are impure and that no one born of a woman can be pure in God's piercing judgment. Thus, we humans are completely limited and restricted by God. As he goes on, our days are set. God has written the number of our months in his book. Like the sea, God installed limits for us that we cannot pass. And as fallen mortals, we cannot steal an extra hour to live from God. And in all his suffering, Job finds this to be crushing, suffocating. And so he calls out for a bit of relief. He says, look away from me and leave him alone, verse 6. Now, this repeats what Job stated uh, back in chapter 7, namely that God's constant gaze on him was all law, and the divine criticism is too constant, too hot. 
So he pleads, look away. Stop putting humanity under your microscope, Lord. Let us be so that we might enjoy our day like a hired hand. Job here, excuse me, does not ask for much, just the satisfaction in our toil and a restful evening. Here we uh, hear an echo of Ecclesiastes, who says, God's gift is for us to find joy in our toil and to eat and drink. So Job pleads for God to look away, to turn off his judicial inspection, and to allow him to have a little joy in his short life, namely an honest day's work and a fine supper with wine to wash it down. And in this, Job commends contentment, which is wise for us. Now, Job isn't enjoying this contentment at the moment as he is in torment, but he longs for the goodness of the contentment of a simple life, which warns us against excessive ambition. We live in an ambitious age where the good life is often pictured as changing the world, whatever that means, and being famous. You must be in the top of your field and have riches coming out of your ears. But this is often folly. Our lives are brief, and it is enough. God's lot for us to enjoy your work, to serve the church, and to be able to rest at night. Life is full of trouble, and so frequently this simple good evades us. And yet when we do enjoy it, we should find contentment in it. Nevertheless, as fine as this is, there's something deep within us, instinctual, that hopes for more. There has to be more than a day's work and a hot meal on this or to this short and troubled existence we call life. We feel the urge to hope for more, something longer-lasting, a flower that does not fade. And yet it is precisely this hope that agonizes Job. And so he lays out a comparison to explore hope. Verse 7, he says, there is hope for a tree. You can cut down a tree, but it can renew itself. It'll send out new shoots. The roots of a tree can get old in the ground. The stump can even die. But then, with this great phrase, he says, at the mere scent of water, the tree buds again. It sends out branches like a new sapling. This is the regenerative power of a tree at the slightest whiff of water. The self-resurrection potency of a tree activated by the fragrance of H2O. Job clearly paints the hope of a tree in its ability to resurrect. It was cut down, it died, but the odor of water brings it back to life. In the reality of death, resurrection is the hope of a tree. But not so for man. Us mortals die, and we dwindle. Man perishes, and where is he? A tree can come back, but a dead human you cannot find again. 
death makes a person no more just like water disappears from the sea or a river that is drained up and dried. Now, the comparison in verse 11 may seem odd to us, for typically we see or understand seas and rivers being self-renewing. And yet this imagery Job borrows actually from Isaiah 19, which is a day of the Lord judgment on Egypt. And this is when God erases seas and removes rivers for good, never to return. And this is what Job compares to the death of a human. So he goes on, a man lies down and never rises again. Until the heavens are destroyed, humans will not awake from their death slumber. We will not be aroused from our never-ending siesta. Trees have the hope of resurrection. We humans do not. Job envies the tree. His sense of, of appropriateness is even offended here. How can a life form so far beneath us have a better hope than us? Trees were created on day three. Humans were created on day six as the Lord and ruler of the realm of trees. The servant has a superior hope than the king and queen? This isn't fitting. Now, Job does speak the truth here, for note he limits this resurrection or this life to this age, as long as the heavens endure. Thus, during this age, there is no resurrection for humans. As long as the earth survives, we stay dead. But trees die and come back again and again. In fact, the oldest known tree is a bristlecone pine at 4,800 years old. We are nothing compared to this. The hope we want is to come back to life. It's denied us. However, in verse 13, Job makes a wish in light of our permanent death coma. He wishes now that God would hide him in Sheol, conceal him in the underworld until wrath passes, and then remember him at an appointed time. Now, typically, Sheol is the place of punishment absent from God. But Job desires it to be the protective holding tank from wrath. And after a set time in Sheol, God would remember him. And to remember is an act of covenant grace and blessing. To remember is to do good to. Thus he asked next, if a man dies, will he live again? Now in light of verse 12, we expect a negative answer. No, he will not. But in the next line, Job says, I will hope so. Will the dead live again? Job will wait for it. He will hope for it until his renewal comes. And what is this renewal? Well, he tells us in verses 15 through 17, he says, then God will call to Job and he will answer. God will long for the work of his hands, namely Job, and this longing is a fairly intense and personal longing for. The Lord will long for Job as a husband misses his wife. 
And then God will count Job's steps, but he will not keep watch over his sin. For Job's sin will be sealed in a baggie and covered over by God. And for transgression to be locked in a box and painted over is for it to be dealt with. The sin is finished and there are no more consequences. Sin will have no more part in Job's and God's relationship and communion. Thus, what is Job's hope that he waits for? Well, it is a post-Sheol after wrath and sin is no more. It is a coming back to life and a renewal when God remembers him, summons him, and delights in Job. This is a color-by-number picture that depicts heaven. Job wishes for a far-off world where communion with God is enjoyed sin-free. This is what he waits for. It is his hope. And this is quite the vision of hope. And yet, it is hard for us to tell the strength of Job's conviction of his hope. This He seems to have a more pie-in-the-sky tone here. He wishes for this, but his certainty isn't particularly robust. He does hope for this blessed communion with God after being held in shoal for a time, but we're not sure the strength of his hope. Nevertheless, the main issue with this distant and wonderful hope is that it doesn't seem very helpful to Job in the here and now. That is, we have a hard time holding on to this hope or actualizing benefits from it. Thus, Job plops down a strong contrastive in verse 18. However, he says, However, mountains fall and he rode away. Marble cliffs are removed from their place. Waters eat away stones and torrents swift away the soil of the earth. Mountains, stones, and cliffs embody the permanent. They endure through the vast ages of history. But even these erode and come to nothing. And if mountains perish then how much more that everything else dies. Disintegrating mountains are the epitome of a decaying world. And so, by rocks that dissolve in water, the Lord destroys the hope of man. Verse 19. Job says God destroys the hope of man. He overpowers humans continually, and we are gone. The Lord disfigures us and we're set away, sent away to a rotting grave. As we see, see cliff faces crumble, our hope dies as we feel the fragility of our mortality. God destroying our hope here, though, doesn't refer to our objective hope of heaven. This is not a denial of the blessed communion of verse 15, Rather, this is our subjective hope, the certainty and hope we feel inside. Namely, our decaying world causes us to lose hope. The permanency of death in this age robs us of a stronger hope. It drives us or can drive us 
to despair and hopelessness. The fact that trees have more hope in this life than us depress us. It fills us with anguish and melancholy. Namely, a far-off heaven doesn't change our short and troubled lives here and now. It doesn't alter our rotting and eroding world held by the grip of death. Thus, Job finishes with two more of the agonies of death. First, he says, when we die, we're cut off from our beloved kids. If our kids are graced with honor, we do not know it in the grave. If our kids are humbled and afflicted, we'll never learn about it in the tomb. Despite what greeting cards say, when we die, we do not look down from heaven upon our families. The dead are not with the living in spirit. No death cuts us off from our beloved families. Despite what the world may say, our careers and jobs are not the most important part of life. Instead, relationships make life worth living especially family and kids. But death separates us from the joy of children and grandchildren. Second, in death, Job says we're left alone, feeling pain and mourning only for ourselves. That is, when we die, it isn't long before we are forgotten. The living soon do not miss the dead. And in the tomb, our flesh feels pain for itself and our soul mourns only for itself. Whatever existence we have in the grave is lonely and unpleasant, according to Job. Job's point, then, is that his hope in a post-Sheol glory doesn't really change our mortal lives, our death-riddled world and the agony of death. There might be a long-away paradise, but in this life, trees still have it better than us. For we are short-lived, sated with trouble, and under the judgment of God, death destroys our hope for a better life, for a second try of life, for a more enduring happiness. Our lot remains that of a hired hand, a good day's work, and a hot meal. And we have to admit that Job's take here is accurate, at least as far as it goes. For too often we make unfitting applications from the resurrection. In the name of the resurrection, we can turn funerals into weddings like celebrations. We can ignore the sting of death that it's still venomous, as if death doesn't hurt. But the truth is, when a loved one dies, we will never see them again in this life. The things we enjoy with loved ones are abundant. The touch of their hand, laughter at a game, hikes in nature, shopping at the mall, a delicious meal. You cannot put a price on these But death ends them all. Death blinds you from ever looking into the eyes of your spouse again. And the grave freezes their warm touch for good. 
Easter morning did not change our short and troubled lives, at least not yet. This age is still subjected to futility and decay. And with death all around us, with decay being so pervasive and permanent, it is hard for us to hope at times. This life, with all its eroding, can kill our hope. Hope in heaven can feel like wishful thinking, like rubbing a pot for a genie. And yet, amid all of this, Job's hope in the far-off renewal with God, sin-free, remains stable here. His confidence in it may not have been strong, but his hope continued. And so it can be for us. We have a hope that on the other side of this dying age, we will be remembered and renewed by God. And the New Testament gives us two truths that improve our hope greatly over Job's. First, in the New Testament, God tells us more about what happens to us when we die. In the Old Testament, post-mortem existence was blurry and indistinct. Sure, they knew that for God's saints, the afterlife was blessed. And it was a curse for the wicked. But what the details of this was, was not clearly defined. However, in the New Testament, we learn that when we die, our souls go to be with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To be away from the body is to be with the Lord. Upon death, we are given white robes and are called to enter our Sabbath rest by Christ himself. Sure, we will still be forgotten on earth, we will not be looking down on our kids, and we will still be separated from our loved ones. But far greater, we will be with the Lord and in his glory. Indeed, God does hide us until wrath passes here on earth, just as Job hopes for. But we are kept safe, not in Sheol, in some shadowy realm, but in the realm of light, in heaven. This is far a far better knowledge that comforts us and warms us with the Lord's everlasting love and faithfulness. That when we die, we do not sleep in Sheol, but we go to be with the Lord where all is good. The second truth that we have from the New Testament that puts us in a better place than Job is the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Job had no record of a human resurrection. He had no fact of history to base his hope in the age to come upon. But we do. Witnessed by over 500 people at one time, testified to by the empty tomb, recorded in the Gospels, Jesus rose from the grave. As a certain fact, Jesus was resurrected from the dead to never die again. He is alive forevermore and at the right hand on high. And as the resurrected one, Jesus is our living hope. By eroding mountains, 
Job says God destroys hope, kills hope. But by Christ's resurrection, God gives us an eternal and imperishable hope. Thus, as surely as Christ is alive, so your hope is living and certain. And like Job's, this hope of ours includes being summoned by God. It means no more sin. It is Christ in love bringing us to himself in a bodily resurrection for an eternal life in the bliss of his holy realm. And it even includes being reunited with our believing loved ones forever. Yes, our lives are short short and troubled. A good lot is to enjoy our toil and a fine evening meal. But this present existence with its sufferings and trouble does not even compare to the wonderful place that Christ has prepared for us. Now our little beauty is fleeting, but then our glorious beauty shall never end. For in Christ then, thus in Christ, we do not envy a tree. And all because Christ died and rose again for us to give us a living hope and a certain knowledge of the resurrection. Thus praise Christ for his glorious grace to give us a better hope in our short and fleeting lives so that we can enjoy God now and glorify him forever. Amen. Let us pray.